Welcome. Welcome back to Studio Secrets A to Z. I'm your host, Anthony J. Resta, and we have an esteemed Hollywood orchestrator and composer and dear friend, Neil Desby, here to tell us uh, some stuff about his career. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Anthony. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's really a thrill for me, and I, I really think this is going to be a kind of a new direction for the podcast because we haven't done any, you know, music appreciation, analytical type stuff like on some of the great classical things, and it's just going to open up a whole new new uh, segment. So it's great to have you. Glad to dive in with you. I wanted to uh, tell people the story of uh, <laughs> how I, I I came across uh, you know your work. Um, there's a composer that we both know pretty well on Instagram, Sean Gold, and I kept seeing these orchestral mock-ups he was doing in um, uh, Logic and and it sounded frankly like John Williams and it was just like it was blowing my mind and I was like I, I just randomly DM'd him and I'm like how the hell did you learn how to do that and he said oh my my, my buddy uh, Neil you know I've been studying with him and uh, he's been showing me these things I said I, I have to meet this guy you know <laughs> and he said well here's his email address and um and, you know, I, as everything in L.A. and Hollywood takes time, I emailed you a bunch of times and like I never give up, you know. And then one day I got an email that said, who are you again? <laughs> <laughs> and and sure enough, you invited me to your, your place and went into the Hollywood Hills and sat down th- th- in your living room and you said, play me something. And immediately I'm, my knees are like knocking and I'm like, what the hell am I going to play this guy? And I sat down and I just started doing the, the same noodles I used to do when I skipped gym in the like 10th grade, you know, <laughs> weird diminished stuff and, you know, septuplets and quintuplets from listening to too much Frank Zappa. And you kind of nodded your head and, and, and you said, okay. And then you found a pile that your whole co- piano was covered with music. And you found this mysterious pile about three piles back and reached <laughs> down about a foot and pulled out one sheet of paper. And it was Albon Berg's uh, Opus One, right? Right. Which is his thesis for college or it was his opus one in piano sonata and he didn't go to college he studied privately with arnold schoenberg for several years okay and that was his graduation piece that that was the piece that he wrote that uh was in a sense a culmination of all his studies because he had gone through everything with him harmony counterpoint orchestration form everything Uh, all the technical aspects of composition and that was, in a sense, you're right, a graduation piece, but it wasn't a formal graduation I with see. cap and gown. And Well, cool. We're going to play a couple of minutes of that right now. Okay.
so after um, you played me that, I can honestly say I was teary, and it was like everything that I felt like was trapped inside me since I was a teenager, and I, I just needed to get it out. And, and you said to me, it's a long road ahead, and, you know, there's a lot you know, that goes into this, you know, you have to, you have to understand a lot of rules before you can break them all. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I remember it so clearly and, you know, we've been now, you know, we're more, we're more friends and colleagues now. We're actually doing work together and things. And, um, but it's been a four year journey and it's just keeps getting better and better. And I'm, I'm just so thrilled to have you here and we're going to get into some nitty gritty here. I appreciate your inviting me over here. I'm glad that we had that that first meeting that went so well. And I've very much enjoyed listening to all the music that you've written over the last few years and incredibly inventive and imaginative. And I, uh, I'm just glad to be part of this. Well, thanks, Neil. I mean, so much of it I owe to the devices and things that you've pointed out through, through all these incredible um, pieces. And we're going to share a few of them today. And one of the places we started um, was uh, Copeland. And I, yeah. I remember early on you were talking to me about um, pan-diatonic and the, mm-hmm. the whole intro to Appalachian... Appalachian Spring. Yeah. Yes. So maybe tell us a little bit about that writing tool. Like, what is pan-diatonic? That's a term that uh, a fellow named Nicholas Lonimsky invented. Nicholas Lonimsky was this this uh, incredible character who of uh, Russian descent, but ended up living in L.A. later in his life. And he was one of those people who knew everybody and knew everything. And he was uh, something of a, in the best sense of the word, a little bit of a scoundrel. He was a a very funny man, great sense of humor. He didn't do anything bad in his life. He was not a criminal when I say he was a scoundrel. But I got to meet him. He used to speak at USC when I was a student there, come and speak because he was good friends with uh, some of my teachers. And he put a book together called The Thesaurus of Musical Scales and Devices. I don't have the title exactly right, but go Slaninsky Thesaurus, okay. and it'll come up. And uh, that was a book that a number of musicians from every genre imaginable uh, had purchased and gotten into, among them Frank Zappa. Wow. Frank Zappa had uh, really been heavily influenced by this book, and he called Slaninsky one day, and had him come up to his house. That's he sent amazing. a limo for him. And then Slonimsky had written this funny, he had done a little bit of composing and written this funny little piece. And I believe, if I've got my story right, and I think I do, he actually performed it at a Frank Zappa concert. Wonderful. Yeah. So well, you know Frank's one of my, my heroes. Your idols. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Wow. So Slonimsky invented the term pandiatonicism just simply to mean that Rather than, and this is going to get a little bit technical, but okay. rather than uh, confining yourself to chords that are built in intervals of the third, triads, that you could mix it up by adding notes, added seconds, added ninths, added sixths, things like that, fourths, and building chords not just on thirds, but on fourths, on fifths, on seconds. And it produces a very... Um, a, a a clean, somewhat spicy sound. I don't know how else to put it in words. And the first person who probably used it was Stravinsky in his ballet Petrushka. Uh, It's possible that Charles Ives, the great American experimentalist, had actually used it before that, maybe in the Thanksgiving movement of his Holiday Symphony. But hardly anybody knew Ives' music at the time that he was writing it. He became famous much later in his life and, and after his life. But Stravinsky used it. He influenced a lot of people. 
a lot of 20th century and 21st century composers use that technique. Uh, Copland, of course, being one of them. Samuel Barber, uh, Benjamin Britten, uh, to this day, uh, Paul Hindemith, uh, Bartok in certain pieces. And to this day, composers like John Adams, Steve Reich uses it, uh, I I don't want to say exclusively, but quite a bit. And a wonderful composer named Jennifer Higdon, another wonderful composer, Michael Torkey. These are my contemporaries. Sure. And that technique is still very much alive. My father was a composer, wrote mostly for the church. And some of his hymn arrangements and folk song arrangements are spiced with that language, with that technique. And... That's where I that's where I heard it and I've used it. Yeah. And it's used in film scores. John Williams, good lord, Bruce Broughton, all of them. Yeah, it's it's everywhere, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and uh, you know the the sort of Americana aspect. That sound, yes, that's part of it. You know. That's definitely um, part of it. Yeah, you you turned me on to that whole world and it's it's just fascinating. The Schwantner was another composer I'd never heard of that you turned me on to. Joseph Schwantner when I was in college, this is in the 1980s. He was a very prominent American composer. He's still he's still with us. I think he's 80 years old this year, actually. It's hard for me to believe. But he came to our school for two weeks, did a residency, very dynamic. And great guy, wrote this beautiful music. I was very attracted to it. And then uh, about a year after I first met him, he wrote a piece. It's probably his best-known piece called New Morning for the World. It's uh, for narrator and orchestra based on the text, based on speeches of Martin Luther King. Wow. And it was premiered, I think, in 1983. Willie Stargell, who was a Hall of Fame Pittsburgh Pirate baseball player who had a very deep... Willie could have been a voiceover artist or a, a an actor. He had such a great, deep voice like James Earl Jones. Yeah. And he did the premiere and he recorded it. Uh, subsequently, among others, Coretta Scott King did the did the piece, and Schwantner was amazed to see her following the score, not just a, a printout of the text, but she she was reading from the musical score. He didn't know that she had been a music major in college. Wow! There you there have you it. There you go. <laughs> wow! We're, we're going to play a little of that right now. Okay.
wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, you know, there are some other composers that early on you turned me on to that really, I have to say, have been life-changing uh, for me. And Lucas Foss mm. uh, is, is one of them. I had never heard of Lucas Foss. And um, I just, I mean, there's a couple of pieces, you know, that, you know, uh, echoey. Mm. Um, wow. You know, um, and what was, there was one that was more um, inside, a little bit more inside that was his more popular one. Um, it was uh, about a prairie. Or something. Oh, the prairie. Right. Yeah, the That's prairie. an early piece. He was 19 when he wrote it. Yeah. Lucas Foss was... Uh, a genius. He, he was, and that's a term that I know is bandied about quite a bit. Everybody becomes a genius. Right. And the kid plays a G major scale on the violin, and he's, he's a, a genius, genius. right? <laughs> <laughs> but Lucas, Lucas should have been the Mozart of his time. He he was that gifted, and uh, he was born in the nineteen twenties, nineteen twenty two, in Berlin, Jewish family, and he started taking piano lessons when he was seven. And as he put it, uh, from my first piano lesson, I started composing. It just seemed natural. I started taking piano lessons somewhere around the same age. I didn't go home and start composing, <laughs> but that's what he did. And uh, eventually the family had to leave Germany. This was in the early 30s for obvious reasons. Yep. And he, But he's, he had studied. He was writing music when he was eight years old. He started to write an opera. Wow. It never, he never finished it, but still, an eight-year-old kid writing an opera. Something's going on there. Right. And he studied with the very, very strict uh, German-European teachers. Then the family moved to Paris for a few years. He continued his studies there with, again, equally strict and thorough teachers, rigorous. And he already started to have music published when he was 13 years old by a big publishing house, Shermer. Uh, things were maybe not looking too good in France either, so the family moved to America. And he entered the Curtis Institute of Music, one of the great music schools in the world, in Philadelphia when he was something like 14 or 15 years old and studying composition, piano, and conducting. Uh, he fell in love with American music. He got to know Aaron Copland. Um, he Leonard Bernstein was one of his classmates. They became close friends at Curtis wow. and then at Tanglewood. And one of the things that Lucas conducted at Tanglewood as a student was Copland's Billy the Kid. Okay which is the first of the big Americana ballets that Copeland wrote. And Foss was so taken with it. And this whole aspect of that open air, open prairie, wide open spaces kind of music. And he's, I've got to write some American music, Americana music. Plus he had fallen in love with his new country. Wow. That had brought his family here. And he had, though he never spoke of it, I'm sure there were relatives back in Germany who met a somewhat a, a much more terrible fate yeah. um anyway but <clears throat> he found a poem by carl sandberg and set it to music for it was a very ambitious piece for vocal soloist chorus and orchestra uh the poem was called the prairie and it's a marvelous piece and i discovered it when i was in my late teens early 20s and i fell in love with it and had such a big influence on me um, and he wrote music more or less in that kind of American and kind of neoclassical style influenced by Copland and Stravinsky and people like that, composers like that, and wrote that way for many years. And then he began to move in more uh, avant-garde circles and started becoming more of an experimental composer. That's like echoey and stuff Echoey like is one of those pieces, yes. That was one of the early ones like that. And It's an interesting had, contrast to how we oh. went. I mean, it's so different. Like, so he, he had all the schooling and all the knowledge and yep. all the all the tools to do every style of, of classical music, but then he ended up going more avant-garde.
Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. More avant-garde. What happened there is he was conducting uh, all over the place. He had played piano in the Boston Symphony. He was a phenomenal pianist. He played piano in the Boston Symphony for several years as their official pianist. Uh, he he conducted, he composed, was commissioned, winning awards, et cetera, et cetera. And then he was offered a post to teach uh, composition at UCLA in the 50s and teach uh, uh, and conduct the orchestra. So he took the job, which allowed him a lot of freedom to still move around the country and perform and compose. And he formed a group called the Improvisation Chamber Ensemble. Wow. It consisted of himself on the piano, uh, clarinet, cello, and percussion, along with the piano, so a quartet. And he just did it as an experiment to help his students. And he said, it ended up changing me. And it led him down a path that he had never thought he'd go down. And Echoey was the second piece that he did there. He wrote a piece called Time Cycle. That was his first so-called avant-garde piece. Love that one. I mean, yeah, that Bernstein. I'm obsessed. That. I'm obsessed with those two pieces. Oh, that's a great piece. And then Echoey, he was writing it here in L.A. at the time. Uh, this is in the early '60s now, and. As he'd said, he started to suffer some from some blurred vision, various other problems, and doctors thought that he might have a brain tumor. Also, he lived in Bel Air with his wife and kids, and in 1961, I believe it was, the Bel Air fire destroyed 400 some odd homes, including his, burned it to the ground, and he lost all his possessions. Wow. Somehow, in the middle of uh, while he's writing Echoey, and there's a part in Echoey where you can hear an anvil being hit by the percussionist and its fire engines. Wow! And anyway, he finished the piece somehow, and it uh, it got 
it got out there. Marvelous. That's yeah. incredible. I think we'll insert a piece of the prairie. Yeah. And a piece of echoey right here. Sure. <laughs> I mean, this is just unbelievable. It's, it's night and day between the yeah, two. Yeah, it's a contrast. But actually, my my first exposure to him, when I was uh, eight or nine years old, I was watching a Bernstein Young People's concert on television. This had to be about 1969 or so. And it was a program on the music of Bach. They did all. They had the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble do a riff on a Brandenburg Concerto. Two guys in the ensemble became very well-known film composers: Mark Snow and Michael Kamen. Um, he had the conductor Leopold Stokowski come out and conduct this huge orchestration Stokowski had done of a Bach a G minor fugue for organ. Uh, Bernstein performed a Brandenburg Concerto with members of the orchestra, and he also did a movement from Foss's Baroque variations called Forion, which means stolen goods. And it is a takeoff on a violin partita by Bach. And I was watching this thing. I'm a kid. And it's this avant-garde takeoff on Bach. And percussionists are breaking bottles and bags. The orchestra sounds as if it's out of sync and then in sync and all this. And I was floored. Wow. I wrote his name down on a little card in the name of the piece, and that was my first impression of him. I knew nothing about his background. I was nine years old. I didn't. I hadn't written any music. How, how strange that years later, didn't you end up meeting him somewhere? I, I met him several times and then actually got to study with him for a time. Oh, my and, goodness. And that was, that was fantastic. And then, and then uh, be, you know, stayed friendly with him, stayed in touch with him. And so when I would go to New York, I would visit him. He lived in New York, and we'd have these marvelous visits, just sit and talk with him. And I would play my music for him. He was very encouraging toward me. I'm not an avant-garde composer, but he was very very enthusiastic about my work and that was a kind of validation i think that oh my we're goodness. all he had gotten that from stravinsky stravinsky idolized stravinsky and and copeland and they had validated him so to speak you know that fuels a person's creativity i mean it you've does. been that for me neil i mean i never would have been doing <laughs> what i'm doing if it, it wasn't well, for you it's it's very similar and i think you. that's one of you know you t- telling these stories about meeting him and this is music history this is stuff that yeah. needs to be told and uh, it's just i'm just kind of overjoyed to have you. Uh, well, I appreciate having the, the forum here. To, <laughs> it's just amazing. It. It's amazing. Yeah. So that, that was, what did you learn? Like, what did you study with Lucas Foss? What was kind of the well, By focus? the time I, I went to him, I had had all my, my technical training had been, I mean, you, yeah. you train your whole life actually, yeah. but I'd had all my counterpoint orchestration, all that written, a lot of music. And so what I got from him, he was very good at looking at the, the larger design of a piece and a lot of it was just getting his comments, his reactions to a piece and, and the enthusiasm that he showed. And it just fueled my, my fire. We, we would talk about music that we both loved and he would share his insights on those, those pieces. He had a way of just looking at a score so quickly. The first piece I ever showed to him was a very ambitious orchestral piece. Not a piece I would show anybody today. It was a, it was good, solid student music, but yeah. still. And I remember I gave him the score one day, uh, late one afternoon, early one evening. Next morning, he hands it back to me, and he tells me all about it. He had learned, and there were markings that he put in the score, and he it was so incredible. And then I a little later showed him some music that I did think was a professional caliber, let's say, that I still pieces I still uh, I, I still acknowledge, and he was 
very enthusiastic about those and just hearing his comments like that were wow. amazing. And every time I'd go visit him, he always I'd always play something for him. That's, that's and again, here's wonderful. somebody who had lived in the avant-garde world for a number of years. And <clears throat> here I'm playing stuff that's a little more traditional, but he was didn't matter to him. In in his day, if you as he put it, if he called somebody musical, that was a high compliment. That was the highest compliment. Sure. And, um, unfortunately, he's not his his music. Uh, it gets played here and there, but he's he's not a known quantity anymore. He died in two thousand nine, and uh, a lot of professionals, of course, know who he is. But he had a much larger audience at one time. When you go down the avant garde path, it can minimize your appeal to a large audience and we don't hear enough of his music the stuff that he wrote in the 1940s and 50s for example is fabulous wow so, i'd like to hear some of that stuff oh yeah so um after studying with lucas foss um what what came next for you let's go back to your childhood actually i want to rewind i want to go to, to the young neil like <laughs> nine ten when, when, how did it all begin my parents were musicians my dad was a remarkable musician he, he played the it started off as a clarinetist he switched the oboe he could actually play he had a certain amount of performing ability on each orchestral instrument and he oboe was his main instrument he actually started me on the instrument too some years later I loved playing I played oboe for about 10 years but my mom was uh, trained as a pianist and organist and she was uh, boy she could play let me tell you and she could sight read anything and we all had music lessons. I, I would just always say I went into the family business. But it was very common, not just in our family, to have music lessons. When I was growing up, at least here in America, virtually everybody I went to school with in elementary school had, was taking piano lessons. I went to a public school, public elementary school, and there was a piano in almost every room, and many of my teachers could play. I see. And we had music, maybe not every single day, but two or three days a week. It was common. Yep. So it's it's very different now, and I'm not trying to say oh it was so much better in the past, but it, but it was different. Yeah, and people were more music musically um, aware. Uh, aware, yeah, that'd be a good word. And so I took piano lessons, and I was certainly no prodigy, but I learned how to play. My first teacher was actually not a terribly good teacher, but I learned some basics from him, and then switched to a teacher named Mrs. Reese, who was. Uh, an excellent teacher, she was an older woman, and she had done some study with Nadia Boulanger in, in uh, Paris. So she had all kinds of techniques that we had to learn. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, really, That's really the, strict. The, the hard stuff. Yes. And around the same time, I this is I'm in by this time in high school, and I was a. They made you declare a major in high school. And I went to Hollywood High School, just yeah. right down the street here a ways. And they had a fantastic music teacher there, Jerry Grant, Mr. Grant. He was only there for a few years. My sister and I were lucky enough to have him. Unfortunately, by the time my younger brother arrived at Hollywood High School, Jerry had left. But I had to take a harmony class. And I hadn't done any composing at this point. I was going to be an oboe player. I was. It was my my aspiration to be an oboist, to go to the Curtis Institute and study there and get a job in an orchestra, and that was going to be that. I knew I knew what I was going to do, right, at 14 or 15. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> anyway, so I take Jerry's harmony class, and it changed my life because 
he, again, he was very strict. I really learned my harmony, but also he would have us compose pieces. And I started doing that, and I got hooked. And by the time I graduated from high school, I knew this is what I wanted to do. I hadn't really written much except some little tiny pieces, but um, I just devoted myself to that, and I began to move in that direction. So incredible, incredible. The oboe began to take less and less the <laughs> space, take up less space in my life after that. Well, one, one of the things that, that, that just blow my mind about your your writing, I mean, you've, you've done a series of uh, triple fugues. Um, what are we up to now, number on triple fugues? Let's see, 21. We've got 21 people, of them. Uh, can you explain to us what a triple fugue is? So for people that are just listening. That's going to be a, a little bit difficult, but a, a fugue a is layman's a, version. a layman's version, right? It, it's a piece of music. Let's put it this way. It's a piece of music that has three distinctive themes in it. And the themes are presented separately and worked out a bit uh, in terms of, of counterpoint. So we're talking about music that has a linear emphasis, an emphasis on line rather than on just nothing but chords. Sure. But of course, when you put the lines together, they create chords. So there is that aspect. You have to be aware of both. But you present each of the themes separately, usually. Sometimes they're presented together, but you present them separately, and then you combine them. And they have to combine in, there are six different combinations you can make. Usually you don't present all six, but let's just put it this way, to be a little technical, each of the melodies for it to be a true triple fugue has to be able to work as a bass line. In other words, generating the harmony. Wow. That's that's pretty I mean, much what th- it is. That's a Rubik's Cube. It uh, is. It's a musical Rubik's Cube. And I just do, I had to learn to write those when I was studying counterpoint, but also a, a few years ago, a friend of mine and I were looking at some Bach fugues one day, and I said, let's look at one that I haven't really studied before. And I I knew the theme of it, but I hadn't really looked at it. And as it was uh, playing a recording of it and following along the music and realized, oh, he's, this is a triple fugue. And I told myself, you need to practice this again. You need to step up to the plate again. Because I usually sit and practice just for, a lot of composers do. You yeah. write some counterpoint or orchestrate something. Shostakovich used to say that, if you if you are not in the middle of writing a piece, then write a canon, write a fugue, write, orchestrate something, do something, keep yourself busy. And you get better and better at it the more you do, you do it. Work on your technique, yeah. I mean, I'm just astounded by some of these fugues, and there's a couple that I've messed around with, and I really look forward to doing more collaborating. I'm going to p- play a little snippet of one of them sure. right here. But uh, I plan on doing some more of these because these could be used in film and TV and stuff because, you know, there's there's Bach and then there's Neil Desby, <laughs> you know, and no, you deserve a place. I belong in that. No, yes, no, you do. Well, you no, do. And uh, you're going to be really nice humble. You. No, you are. It's mind blowing skills, people. And I want I can't wait to share it.
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And from the fugues, let's get into like you, one of the pieces of music you gave me was one of your, it was a mirror cannon. Oh, and, right. And, and I, I actually, I place it in a prominent place in my office over there so that I can be inspired every time I walk by it. Uh-huh. Tell us about a mirror cannon. Mirror cannon. Uh, mirror cannon is just simply a kind of piece. A, a cannon is a piece of music in which you state a melody and before it's finished, you repeat that melody in another voice or instrument. They chase each other around. the The most common form of canon that a lay a lay person would know would be around. Sure. Row, row, row your boat. Sure. Three blind mice. Yep. Frere Jacques. A mirror canon is one in which you have to work it out. Very, it's very detailed, but essentially, it's a piece in which it's the same music whether the music is right side up or upside down. Okay. And that's what. That's what a mirror is. And that's, is. that's just insanity. It is. It's insanity. It is. <laughs> no, I, I'm, uh, I'm just <laughs> always crazy. astounded by, by all your technical skills. And, and, but, but what I love is the heart and soul in it. You know, it's like, it's funny. You, I've listened to a lot of your triple fugues and like, you know, you'll say to me, what do you think of this one? Or what do you think of that one? And like being a producer, I like certain little melodies will hit me a certain way, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, and as much as they're all great, a few stand out for me and those are you know that's just been really a thrill for me to be able to thank you get those bounced off Uh, well you you to turn the tables on you you actually inspired me because i had i think i'd written three of them and i thought okay that's that's enough i've i've and i was very happy with uh, all three worked but it was the second one that i liked the most because again the big challenge is is not so much the technical aspects I learned all this stuff at a time when it was common to teach this stuff. So I'm not unique in that way. I had old school teachers. This is what composers used to go through. Right. Much less so now. Yeah. So I'm just a product of, of that era. And I'm very grateful for it. But it's not, it's not that I stand head and shoulders above other people. We just had, that's the training we had. My classmates and I had to learn all this stuff. Yeah. And <clears throat> um, what was I going to say? What happens is that when you solve the problems of finding three themes that work together and working them out, all this apart and together, the real challenge is coming up with a piece that sounds like music, not just an exercise. That's the, that's the challenge. And I had stopped at three. I had some themes for another one, but I, I, quite frankly, I just thought they'd didn't sound that good. I thought they sounded kind of dumb. I don't know why. And I played them for you. And you were so enthusiastic about them, I thought, well, maybe Anthony's got something here. And I started working it out. And that's the one that so far, out of all of them, I've played a few for various people, various friends of mine. 
number four is the one that everyone seems to like the best. And that's, that's I, and I wouldn't have done it had you not been so enthusiastic Well, I love that. You know, it's, I'm, a, I'm so, a hooks guy. I owe you. you know, there's there's yeah. hooks in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's it, which goes to the idea I've always said that every piece of music in every genre, genre for it to, I don't care what you're talking about, rock, pop, hip hop, classical, jazz, ska, reggae, whatever, it has to have a hook. There has to be something in it that sticks in your mind. The common definition of a hook, of course, is in in a pop song, sure. which is usually the title of the song that has stormy weather, you know, something like that, right? But every piece has to have a hook. Sure. Everyone and or hooks. You know, it's it's bum, 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 bum. there. It is. That's a hook. You know, that's a hell of a hook. It's, and so I appreciate that uh, when when I play things for you, I know you've got your ear on the the hook. And I, it's, it's just a it's it's. What's the word? It's a gut instinct thing because right. I've been doing this so long that I don't even really think about it. But it's just part of your often, job. <laughs> yeah, we talk about on the show a lot is that trust your instincts. Yep. You know. Yep. It's a really important thing, and that that's a really you know an obvious thing, but but sometimes it's easy to miss. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I know. I know. So so after you you know graduated. Uh, college and then mm-hmm. tell us how you got into like the Hollywood the orchestrating and conducting that's, I got that's into exciting. that actually uh, by by being a teacher is okay. what happened and I was teaching at uh, USC just doing some they had me stay on and teach some classes and USC and UCLA among others are feeder schools to the industry if I were teaching nothing against any other college in any other part of the country but if I were teaching let's say in the Midwest um I probably would not break into Hollywood, okay? Maybe the most I would end up doing is writing some music for some local news station or something like that. I mean, honestly. Yep. But uh, I had a private student who was writing music for a TV show, and he asked me to orchestrate, and that's how it started. And then little by little, what I actually wanted to do was write music for TV and film, I had no idea, to be brutally honest here, to, to be brutally honest about myself, I had no idea how to promote myself in that way. I put a little cassette together, didn't know how to market it, and that's okay. What happened, though, is that people I knew, people who came to me for some private study, uh, and I was busy composing and getting performances. I had uh, recordings of my pieces that I could play for people, orchestral pieces, and I could show, oh, this guy knows how to orchestrate. This guy can do this, he can do that. And composers, the word gets around a little bit, and I started doing some orchestration. And one thing led to another. Uh, gradually, it, it's been off and on. It, it, it was yeah. at first a little bit slow, then I'd get a gig, and then it would be slow again. Again, I didn't know how to market, so I had to learn how to how to push a bit. Sure, that's... that's, that's it's not that's, fun. No, but, it's, it's, that's how it works, though. I mean... And then, fortunately, then of course, the internet uh, began to be more prominent. And fortunately, you have IMDb, and that ends up being really your resume. Sure. People, because I remember talking to a film composer agent who is a friend, friend of a friend. This was several years ago. My friend said you should talk to him. I said, well, I haven't really written anything for a film. I said a little bit here and there, maybe some ghostwriting. I said, but mostly I've done orchestration and conducting. He said, yeah, but maybe he'll be able to help you. He can turn you on to some of his clients. I said, okay, fine. He calls me up one day. We talk. He asks me, what are some of your credits? And again, this is 10 or 15 years ago. I said, well, I've done A, B, and C. I hear him typing in the background. 
<laughs> he says, oh, you actually have done these things. I said, of course I have. Why would I say that I did when I didn't? He says, because this is Hollywood and people lie all the time. And I said, I laughed. I said, well, but you can look me up to see that I am, whether I'm telling the truth or not. Why would you? So we had a good laugh over it anyway. But um, I've had a pretty steady stream of clients and work for the last, easily probably the last couple of decades. Maybe there've been a few gaps in there. That's wonderful. Yeah, it, it's been great. I've been very busy. I was actually working on something before I came here and yeah. orchestration for a TV show. So I'm, I'm it, excited to I'm excited to have you orchestrate some of my original pieces once we get oh them my in the God. right places. You know, I'm really excited about it. And I would love that. I, I mean, I've heard some of your music in uh, Outward, but the Pixar film, I heard some of your orchestration in that. I mean, there's just a lot. People can can look you up and sure. get into that aspect of it too. I thought a, a fun thing would to be... Um, to maybe this might be a cool place to play one of my weird pieces that you yes. really like. This is a piece called The Forever and Now. Oh, I love that. And this would not exist if it weren't for you because it's like, <laughs> it, it just comes from a place that's very, very different for me. And it was, um, so anyway, we're going to play it for you. I love that piece. Yeah.
Okay, that wraps up part one. Thanks so much for coming by. Thank you. And we'll, Thank we'll have you. be back soon. And we'll see you next time. This is Anthony J. Resta for Studio Secrets A to Z, signing off. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.